right, so we're, we are in the, the end of the book of Habakkuk, and this chapter I think is a very interesting one. When you read it on the surface, it's like, man, there's not much to it, but this uh, chapter is actually pretty loaded. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in here, and I want to make sure that uh, uh, hopefully time will permit to talk about everything that I want to talk about from this chapter, because there really is, there's a lot here. And so I want to uh, start reading, uh, just do a little review before we get into chapter 3, uh, because the message of chapter 3, a lot of people get it completely wrong. And uh, the title of tonight's is the, Re- the Restoration of Israel and Salvation. I think the history uh, doctrine surrounding the restoration of Israel is probably one of the most poorly taught subjects in the IFB world. Most people, when they talk about the restoration of Israel, they preach about all of it like it's a future event. And that's just not true. And the thing is, though, it is partially true. You know, There is some truth to some of this being about the future, but the thing is, if you miss the primary application of it and the fact that it was referring to a prophecy of them coming back to their land after the 70 years of captivity, if you don't understand that, then you're going to assume a lot of things falsely. And so hopefully, uh, after we go through this tonight, you'll have a good understanding of this. So just a little bit of review though. So in chapter 1, the prophet Habakkuk, he wants God to intervene and get Israel right with him. But God And God tells him, that he is raising up the Babylonians to come and judge them. God is not ready to, or God is not going to get them right during this time. We know from Jeremiah, they had crossed the line. Reprobate silver shall men call them. God was not going to allow them repentance. That generation was reprobate, meaning not that they were all unsaved devils going to hell, but meaning as a, as a generation, they had crossed the line to where they were not getting out of this judgment. Because obviously not everybody in Israel was reprobate because there was guys like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that got taken captive, didn't they? But guess what? They got taken captive. You know why? Because they were a part of a generation that judgment was declared on, a judgment that there was no getting out of. So that's uh, the reprobate silver. I think that's in Jeremiah 30. Uh, you know, There's a lot of great evidence there to prove what we believe about the reprobate doctrine. But at the same time, you know, rejected from repentance, rejected from getting out of a judgment is not necessarily the same as rejected from getting salvation. So it's an important thing uh, that we understand that there because reprobate just means rejected, but that's, uh, I don't want to get off into that too much. But so God's raising up the Babylonians because God's going to judge Israel. They are going to be punished. Habakkuk does not like that plan, but Habakkuk was wrong. We saw that last week in chapter two. So God ends up telling the prophet, He's got to also has a plan to judge the Babylonians after they've dealt with Israel. And so now, after God is, uh, deals with Babylon, we talked about that last week when we looked, went and looked and saw after 70 years, sure enough, the Babylonians got what was coming to them. The Medes and Persians came, took them over. We saw that. Okay. But now, and this, remember, this is all way before. This is, you know, decades before any of this happened. This is before they've been taken captive. It was prophesied that not only were they going to go into captivity, but then God was going to restore them to their land. And that's what this chapter is about. This is showing how while bad things are coming for Israel, really bad things are coming for for Israel. Just understand, good things are coming too in the future. 
So keep that in mind. So let's start reading in verse 1. And it says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon uh, Shigianoth. And I don't know for sure what that word means, but at the same, uh, I do know it's some kind of musical term uh, or refers to the type of poem that this is because this chapter clearly is uh, a song. It's a poem. The very last verse, um, it says, to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. So this is a chapter that was sung. I'd like, you know, I wish we knew what it sounded like. Brother Daniel, I have to work on uh, choir arrangement of this. I don't and uh, I want it to be just like they did. I don't know how you'd figure that out. But uh, either way, this was something that they sang. You know why? Because there's actually hope in this. This is something good that's being prophesied here, even though before this good comes, there's some really bad that's going to be coming first. But it's all part of God's plan. So verse 2 says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. And, you know, it is appropriate for us to always be pleading to God for mercy. Do you know, it's okay for us to ask God for mercy on America. It's okay. It's okay for us to do that. Okay? We don't need to just be cheering on its destruction. It's okay for us to ask for mercy. Because here's the thing about asking for mercy. Asking for mercy it implies all by itself that we deserve bad. Okay? When we're asking God to bless our nation, asking God to be merciful to our nation, what we're doing is we're admitting we don't deserve it, but it's okay for us to want it and ask for it. Asking for mercy also implies that we're dependent on God for good. You know, you're, you're, never, you're not going to go wrong by asking God for mercy. And what is inappropriate, though, this is what's inappropriate, is when we act like we deserve good to be done. I'll tell you why God's blessed our mer- you know, our nation because we're just such a righteous nation. We've sent out more missionaries. We've supported Israel. And therefore, uh, you know, God has blessed us through all these things. Listen, it's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. And we better never forget that. Don't, don't ever forget that. So verse 3, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. We see that term Selah in there like we see a lot in Psalms. And uh, when he's talking about God coming from Teman and uh, the Holy One from Mount Paran, what I believe that's a reference to, I was trying to find the modern day location, but I, I believe it's a referring, you know, from where they were at, where this was given, uh, the uh, in the east would be Teman and Mount Paran was in the west. And so just like the sun comes up in the east and kind of goes over you, sets in the west, It's just kind of a poetic term, just talking about how God is over them, God is covering them, uh, just like the sun does. And so uh, it's always important, too, when we're reading in the book of Psalms, understand poetic language. A lot of times people get real weird and goofy and go ultra-literal on some of these things. And, you know, when we are being musical, we often uh, are not always 100% factual about everything. It's just uh, we're trying to paint a picture, uh, you know, say things that are uh, moving and majestic. And I think that was a pretty good way to put it. And I think, you know, it would be like us, the way we would say today, you know, we would say, uh, you know, God came from what's east of us. All right. You know, if we were talking about America, you know, God came from what's like the farthest east city, you know, New York. Yeah. Yeah. From Boston. And then he went to. 
Los Angeles. You know, just talking about God's covering our nation like the sun does. And so I think that's what that's a reference to. So verse 4, And his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was a hiding uh, of his power. Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. And in the first chapter, uh, Habakkuk, in a poetic way, wrote about the power and the might of the Babylonians, how they were going to cover the earth, how nothing was going to stop them. They were going to be you know, just going through the earth. And he was, he was very poetic there too, just describing the might and the power of the Babylonians. And now he's talking about God, basically him covering them, but he's speaking of it in an even greater way. So that's kind of what we're seeing go on here. And in verse 6 says, He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. And again, this is just showing how the nations, uh, they're nothing to God. They're, they're nothing to Him. And that, isn't that exactly what we see in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 17, where it says, All the nations before Him are as nothing. They are counted to Him less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will ye liken God or what likeness will ye compare unto Him? So think about it. In chapter 1, he's been talking about just the Babylonians. Look how strong they are. Look how mighty they are. Habakkuk, he's concerned because he's like, these people are just going to completely wipe Israel out. They're not going to show any mercy. They're not going to let up. And then it's like God's showing, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of them. And then I'm coming. And then I'm going to intervene. Then I'm going to do a work. And guess what? I'm stronger than the Babylonians are. I've got more power and might. Those nations are nothing to me. And let me tell you, God wasn't intimidated by the Babylonians or the Medes and Persians or the Greeks or any of these people. God's not intimidated by America. God's not intimidated by any of those things. And I love when he says that verse 2 in Isaiah, to whom then will ye liken God? This is a great verse for anybody that wants to accuse you of heresy because you do a bad job explaining the Trinity. Okay? Right, right here, to whom then will you liken God? What, are we, what, what comparison are we going to use? We all try it though, don't we? We all try it. And then somebody always wants to pick it apart and then show heresy that we teach. And you know, I'm sorry, I was, I'm just trying to describe the Trinity. I'm just trying to describe God. You know what we just need to start saying to these people? Isaiah 40, 18, to whom then will you liken God? What are we going to compare them to? There, there's nothing we can compare God to. No comparison will, of God will ever do justice. So sometimes it's just best for us to not speak of things that are just so far above us. And don't ask me to describe God in good detail that is going to be sufficient. It can't be done. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, Selah, thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by and the deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. And what's all this talking about here? You know, think about the forces of nature that are they're incredible to us you know you know go try to stop a river you can't do it go try to stop the ocean you know mountains go move a mountain try to do all these things you know these are things that are great obstacles for us that are great challenges things that are beyond us but yet these things are nothing to god 
God's the one that put them all there. These things don't matter. The mountains, they saw it and they trembled. The mountains are scared of God. Okay. All, all this is, is just very poetic talk, just showing how mighty and how powerful God is. This is important to remember. You know, think about the heavenly bodies. Okay? I mean, we think we're great just because we got to the moon. We think we're all that just, just because of that. And what, you know, that's, that's nothing. We can't even get to the first star. You know, and, but look what it says in verse 11. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. So the sun and moon are scared of God. There, these things are no match. You know why? These things are all just God's creation. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. Selah. So what we're seeing here is again showing how God is going to deal with this nation. Because I mean because think about this too. Okay. And you know, forget that we know the story of, of what's going to happen. If you are Habakkuk back in that day and God tells you somebody like the Babylonians are going to come and they are going to defeat you and they're going to take you captive. In your mind, you're going to be thinking the Babylonians will never let us go. We will never come back from this. We will be destroyed. If we found out, if some prophet came along and told us China is going to invade, China is going to destroy our country, they're going to take over our government, they're going to t- uh, defeat our military, we would be, America's done. We will cease to be a nation. You know, we will, we will never come back to what we were before. That's what would be in our mind. And so when God has prophesied these things in chapters 1 and 2, in Habakkuk's mind, that's the end of Israel. We're done. We're, you're, you're, God, you basically prophesied the end of us as a nation, but yet God here, is start, He's talking about salvation, saying, I'm going to come. I'm going to restore things. I'm going to bring Israel back, which would be an incredible miracle. And think about it. If something like that ever happened, if China ever took over, defeated our military, did all that stuff, would it not be a miracle if we ever became the United States of America again with the same constitution and uh, were what we were before? Would that not be a miracle? Yeah, that would be a major miracle. And especially would have back then in this day. But this is what God's promising. This is what's, what's going to come. Um, so verse 14 says, Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the, vo- the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. So, I believe the primary application of this prophecy here, it is, it is about the restoration of Israel after the Babylonian captivity. But at the same time, one thing that I think we can kind of see hints of, and it's, there's not a whole lot of this here, but we can see a lot of hints of this in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. A lot of times when you look at these prophecies, do we not see the millennial kingdom in there too? And so I don't want to be too hard on those who make all the passages about the restoration of Israel 
about something that's in the future. There are things in there that are a picture of the future, that are a picture of the millennial kingdom. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Okay, there, there's no way around that. But you know, how do we reconcile it with everything else? Because a lot of it, because th- there is no doubt. Mainly, what he's talking about here is what is going to happen after the 70-year captivity. There, there's no doubt about that, and many of those things did happen. But let's go ahead and read the rest of this, and then we're going to spend just a lot of time explaining. Uh, this whole restoration of Israel and what it meant and what it's a picture of and how it applies to us today as the church. Because what the dispensations want to tell you, that's all about Israel. It has nothing to do with the church. Wrong. Okay. There is actually some things that we can pull from these that are in fact about us. And uh, there, there's no doubt about that. So look at verse 17. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall the fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail. And the fields shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like hind's feet, and He will make me to walk upon my high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. So, here he, in verse 17, he says, you know, the fig tree is not going to blossom, you know, none of these things are going to happen yet. Yet somehow, God is my strength. Notice that verse there. God is my strength. Or in verse 18, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though all these bad things are coming, even though the fig tree is not going to blossom, we're not going to get fruit or anything like that, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like hind's feet. He will make me to walk upon the high places. So, what is this talking about? What could this be a picture of? And I believe what God wants them to understand and what God wants us to understand is that in the end, God is going to make everything right. Okay? God, God's going to save us. He's going to save them from all their troubles. So, this is an interesting ending to this book when you consider that the main purpose of this book is that it's prophesying the greatest judgment that has ever come on Israel to that date. At that point, there had never been a greater judgment. And, God, and Israel had been judged a lot. They've been taken captive. But nothing like what we are seeing here. This was going to be the greatest judgment that they have ever faced. That's what Habakkuk re- is revealing in here. Yet, at the end, we see this song. We see this message of hope. Why? Because after God deals with these things, God is going to restore them. God's going to do a miracle and bring them back. So, this message that we're supposed to get from this chapter, I believe, is a message that we see throughout the Bible. I think the key verse in the book of Habakkuk is chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, the just shall live by faith. That's referred to, I think, three or four times in the New Testament. Okay? So, Let's put this passage in context for what was going on during that time. So remember, judgment was coming for Israel, but there was also a promise of deliverance in the future. Okay? Now today, when we read the Bible most of the time today, we read it with the mindset of the individual, which you know it's fine, but a lot of times we go to the Bible trying to pull things out of it and applications from it that the author never intended. Okay? 
I, I, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me questions about, you know, was this person saved in the Old Testament? Was that person saved? And it's like, you know, and, and people want to fight about who was saved and who wasn't saved in the Old Testament. And it's like, at the end of the day, those stories were not about the individual salvation of the people in those stories. You know, Ahab, was Ahab saved? Uh, I like to think Ahab went to hell as bad as he was. But at the same time, we do see that part in the end where he humbles himself. You know, did he get saved? And, and I don't want to go into my opinion on that. But, but at the end of the day, the problem that people have when they try to teach whether Ahab was saved or that he wasn't saved is there is nothing in there that's trying to show us, you know, his personal standing with God. It's all about, uh, you know, him being king of Israel and all the bad things he did and how... And, and I, I, I don't want to get sidetracked on that. I probably shouldn't even open that can of worms but because uh, I, I, I don't have time to deal with it. But here's the problem everybody has when they do that. They're trying to pull some from the Scriptures that God wasn't trying to explain. That God wasn't trying to teach. we got to watch out for that. We can get a lot of things wrong when we do that. But so the thing is, some passages, like the book of Habakkuk, it's geared not towards individuals, but to an entire nation. That's what's being written to. It'd be like if I wrote a letter to America. I'm talking to the country as a whole. Okay? And if I'm talking to the country as a whole, there might be some people, some of you might be an exception to what I'm saying. For example, if I was like, you know, America, and you're part of America, right? But then I say, America, you promote homos. Well, is that not a true statement? But is that true about you? No. So, well, that's wrong though, because I'm an American. I don't, this isn't to you as an individual. It's about the country as a whole. And so what people do, they start pulling things from these passages they're not supposed to, and they get everything all mixed up. We've got to watch out for that. And so the thought of this Babylonian takeover in the minds of it, in their minds during that time, this would mean the end of Israel as a nation, which would also create a lot of problems because a lot of prophecies hadn't been fulfilled yet. So, you know, they're, they got to be scratching their head. And so even though Israel basically did cease to exist as a nation in many ways with the destruction of their temple, uh, with the captivity of the people, God did still restore them later. Now, what is this a picture of? Okay. The, the restoration of Israel, without a doubt, is a picture of salvation. Okay. There, there's no doubt about this. Okay. And a, a proper understanding of the re restoration of Israel, its, the, its purpose, its history, this is very important if you're going to know how to defend replacement theology. And Because and the, the Zionists are, they're very quiet about this subject. If you start studying too much about the restoration of Israel, it's going to kill their pet doctrines that they have about Israel. And so, what does the restoration of Israel after the Babylonian captivity have to do with the church and replacement theology? Okay, Because a proper understanding of this subject, it will help you see the errors of the Zionists who use Old Testament scriptures to talk about the restoration of Israel being something in the future and also a proper understanding of, of where Israel went wrong and why they were judged will also help us understand how Old Testament prophecies that we know are future, how they apply to us today. Now go to Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah chapter 56. This is, and, and I, I preached about this the, uh, not too long, long ago when we talked about the triumphal entry. But this is a very important passage of Scripture right here that the Zionists tend to ignore. 
And it says in verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, Keep ye judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, and keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Now, the, uh, the book of Isaiah, this is something that was written before the Babylonian captivity, but it was when a lot of these things were uh, kind of starting to gear up, uh, where you know judgment was heading, but uh, it, you know thankfully it got delayed because Israel got some things right. But right here, God is showing a part of his plan for Israel that we ignore. Right? The Zionists, all, they always want to make it. It's all about the Jews. It was all about the Jews. When Jesus Christ came, Jesus Christ came for the Jews. It was all about the Jews. When the Jews rejected, then he decided, well, you know what? I guess I'll try the Gentiles now. Okay? That, that's our attitude. Baloney. Okay? Here's something people don't understand. One of the jobs of Israel that God had gave to them was for them to be a light to the world. That, the, the temple was not just supposed to be for the Jews. It was supposed to be for the whole world. God wanted people from all over the world to be there when He came. But when He came, were there, was there anyone there that was acceptable? No, the Jews weren't even acceptable. They were a mess. And Jesus got angry. He drives them out with a whip. And then what does He say? He quotes Isaiah 56. And so, and so notice He's saying to the stranger, don't let the son of the stranger that join himself to the Lord speak saying the Lord has separate. You know, don't let the Gentile listen to those dispensationalists and those Zionists who say that it's just about the Jews right now. You know, they, they had Sam Gibbs back in that day too. Let me tell you, the false prophets, they've always been of the same demonic spirit and those demonic spirits, the same one that's possessing him today was possessing those guys back then and they were teaching the same trash. And Isaiah covered that stuff saying, don't let them say that. But why would they say it? Because Sam Gibbs' possessor was possessing somebody else back then, saying the same thing, saying the same trash. You know, um, for thus saith Lord of the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths and choose those things that please me and take hold of my covenant. Remember when the law was first given, when God first did these things, you know, people like eunuchs and that were the privy members had problems and things, they weren't allowed at first. But God did, God changed, God changed some things, and I don't have time to get into why some of those things changed and developed. But, but either way, it's, there's no doubt right here. When Jesus Christ came to earth, these people weren't supposed to be shut out. They were supposed to be accepted. It says, even unto them will I give in mine house, and within my walls a place, and a name better than the sons and of the daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house. It sounds like God wanted everybody, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like God wants everybody? Their burnt offerings... And their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. 
Why did Jesus bring that up when he came that, that day? You know why? There were supposed to be people from all over the world there, but they weren't. You know why? Because the Jews shut them out. They weren't supposed to do that. The Lord God which gathereth the outcasts of Israel saith, Yet will I gather others to him beside those that are gathered unto him. So understand, Israel failed miserably in this area because when Jesus Christ came to earth, he wanted to have a people from all nations, from all over the earth. And so understand, under that first covenant, Israel failed in getting the job done, didn't they? They were not purified. They had not been a light to the world. They hadn't done any of those things. So you know what God had to do? God had to institute a new and a better covenant. And in that new and that better covenant, we see God has given us the Holy Spirit that indwells us. We know those, we don't have to do the sacrifices anymore. In fact, we don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. In fact, under the new and better covenant, God has sent us out into the whole world to preach the gospel to every creature. Isn't that so much better? Isn't that, isn't that so much better? We don't have to worry about the Sabbath, the, you know, the whole, the holy days, all those things. Jesus did all of that for us. These things have been replaced under the new covenant. So understand though, that those promises of certain things in God's kingdom that we read about in the Old Testament, those things are still going to be fulfilled, which is why we find future things in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk. That's why we see things that are about the millennial kingdom. But understand, under that first covenant, those things were supposed to happen back then. But they didn't. So now they're going to be fulfilled under the new covenant, which is so much better. So if you don't understand that, okay, what you're going to end up doing is you're just going to make everything in here about the future and you're going to get, and you got to understand some things have changed under the new covenant. Some things, but everything is better. And it was, it was God's plan to include people from all nations and his plan is still going to be fulfilled, but fulfilled through Jesus Christ, not the Jews. Through Jesus Christ. And so, how is the restoration of Israel a picture of salvation? Okay, And I think this is fantastic here. Because think about this. So, when Habakkuk gave this prophecy, it was one that there was no coming back from. Okay, We know that too from, from the book of Habakkuk. We know that from Jeremiah. There was no place for repentance when it came to this. This captivity was coming. There was nothing they could stop it. So, how does that apply to us? Well, think about this. The wages of sin is death, isn't it? Because we've sinned, we have a death sentence on us, don't we? A physical death sentence. And guess what? You can't get out of that unless Jesus Christ returns. Did you know? And this is, this is proof too that salvation is faith in Christ and not repenting of sins because did you know even if you repent of your sins right now and never sin again, you're still going to die one of these days? You will still die. You know why? Because you've sinned. Once you became a sinner, you received a death sentence, a physical death sentence that you will never get out of. Every one of us, if the Lord tarries is coming, we will die. And we will die because we are sinners. There's, there's no repentance of that, folks. We can't repent of that. I can't just, you know, if, if, 
if I could, you know, I could just say, right, I'll just never sin again and then I'll never die, right? No. That's not the way it works. Once you've sinned, it's too late. The day you sinned, you receive a sentence of certain death. Now, even though one day we will be dead, just like Israel was in captivity, we know that one day God will bring us up from death, won't he? Even though we're going to be dead, one of these days God will raise us up from death. So think about this. Just like there was no way for Israel to repent and get out of their judgment, there's no way for us to repent of our sins in order to get out of that physical death. So again, theoretically, if I stopped all sin today, you know, would I earn heaven or stop death from coming? No, not at all. Because sin has already happened. I can't take it back. I can't take back any sin that I've done. I'm going to die. But if I have faith, because the just shall live by faith. If I have faith in Christ, I still will die just like Israel was still going to go into captivity. There was, no, there was nothing they can do to get out of it. They were still going to go into captivity, but just like G, you know, God came and restored them, Jesus Christ is going to come back one of these days and resurrect me from the dead. And you know, that must have been a humiliating time for Israel when their temple was destroyed, when their land lied waste, when they were in captivity in another nation. That was a humiliating time. Just like one of these days when I die, you're going to have to put my body in the ground because it's going to see corruption. It's going to rot. It's going to deteriorate. It's not something I want to be left lying around. I want you to bury me when that time comes because it's not going to be pretty what happens to this carcass. But you know what? No matter what happens to me in that grave, Jesus Christ is going to resurrect me one of these days. Jesus Christ is going to, res- He's going to restore me one of these days. And so just like God still loved Israel but had to punish them, he had a plan to restore them. And you say, well, that, then you're basically saying that we're still going to be punished for our sins. Well, here's, here's the thing about that. We are still going to physically die, aren't we? But yet, we don't really see it as punishment because we know to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. We know our spirit that's been born again, as soon as I die, I'm going to be with the Lord. We, but physically speaking, judgment is coming, you could say. But I'm not worried about it. Because me, who I am, what's been born of God, it's going to immediately be in heaven. And then one of these days, though, this body that is going to be judged, that is going to go in the grave, that is going to deteriorate, it is going to be restored. It's going to be resurrected. So I'm not worried about it, you know, and I'm not going to go and do whatever I can do to preserve this carcass so it doesn't, you know, get as nasty. You know, I'm not going to have them mummify me or freeze me or something like that. You know, either way, when you're dead, you're dead. It doesn't really matter how pretty your corpse is. You know, you're dead, good for nothing, but God will restore me one of these days. And so I, I think that what we're seeing here at the end of Habakkuk 3, verse 17, says, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall the fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, there shall be no herd in the stall. Israel's not doing anything. Israel's not accomplishing anything. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. I don't produce anything good. I can't accomplish anything. There's nothing great about this vile body of mine. But you know what? I can still rejoice. Why? Because I can rejoice in the God of my salvation. I can still give glory to Jesus Christ because the Lord is my strength who will make my feet like hinds feet. 
He will make me to walk upon mine high places. So even though I'm going to die, one of these days, He's going to raise me up. I'm going to be able to walk on those high places again. I'm going to be, I will walk this earth again one of these days. If I die, it's okay if you're a little bit sad for me, but don't be too sad because I'm not going to stay dead. I will walk this earth again one of these days because I'm going to be restored. And so, you know, even today when many people read about the restoration of Israel, they're still looking for God to do something with a physical people instead of a people of faith like Habakkuk talked about. That's what he talked about. That's what he prophesied about. Israel failed and fell short in every single dispensation. Now, turn, turn over to um, Ezekiel 37. Okay. They, and, every, and when I say they failed in every single dispensation, I'm saying that for the dispensationalists. Okay, they failed in every single one. Now, why did they fail in every single dispensation? You know why? Because they were the seed of Adam. That's why they failed. You want to know why you sinned and received that physical death sentence? And you had a spiritual death sentence too. Thankfully, that got immediately taken away when you received eternal life. Okay? But the physical, the physical death sentence, you, got, you know why you got that? Because of who you're related to. You got it from your parents. Okay, Kelly just the other day, just what was it she did and she blamed somebody else for it? She blamed Hannah for something that she did. She's only two. And she's already learned to blame her younger sister. Where did she learn that? Well, maybe from her older sisters that blame her for stuff all the time too. But where did they, we got that from Adam and Eve. Isn't that exactly what they did? And you don't have to teach your kids to do that stuff. Okay? They will do, they will do that. You have a lonely child. They'll find somebody else to blame. That's just, that's the, that's the way it works. So what God is going to raise up someday and restore it will not be a physical people, but a, a spiritual people, a people of faith. And I'm, I'm not going to take time to go right now to 1 Corinthians 15. I want to go to Ezekiel 37, but you all know 1 Corinthians 15. That's the resurrection passage where Paul is explaining that changed body that we're going to be resurrected. Where he said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And what it says, this corruptible must put on incorruption. It says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We can't get into the kingdom of God with this flesh and blood. Yet we have people today that still want to make a big deal about Jewish blood. Like they've got something special going on when we have their history book right here. And trust me, nothing special is going on right there. Okay? They fail at every single example. Why? Because it's not about Jewish blood. It's about Adam's blood. And everybody's got that. And that's why they, they're just as bad as anybody else. Now, uh, I, I keep talking about going to Ezekiel. I haven't went there yet. Ezekiel chapter 37. Now, he, so here's the thing. This chapter here, the dispensationalists, the Zionists, they love this passage right here. And they talk about it like all of this is something in the future. And there is, there's no doubt this is about the restoration of Israel but, you know, that's the primary application. But there's no doubt there's future stuff here too, isn't there? There's no doubt about that at all. But let's, let's read some of this and read it keeping these things in mind. Because remember, flesh and blood is not going into the kingdom of God. Okay? So Ezekiel 37 one says, The hand of the Lord is upon me, and He carried me out into the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of a valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about. Behold... 
there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again he saith unto me, Prophesy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you. I will bring flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. And what people are teaching today is Israel ceased to be a nation in 70 A.D., but in 1948. In 1948, God restored them. Well, wait a minute. Why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it be? They ceased to be a nation when the Babylonians took them over, and seventy years later, God did. God brought them back. God allowed them to rebuild their temple. You know. Now, why? Why wouldn't it be about that? Well, here's why. They, because when we keep reading, we will see things that clearly are in our future. But the but here's what they ignore. Okay, here's what they ignore. They ignore the books of Zechariah. They ignore the book of Malachi. They ignore the instructions that God gave to them when He brought them back to their land. When God uh, gave them their temple, God gave them very clear instructions telling them to basically to wait and prepare for the one who's going to prepare the way of the Lord and for the Messiah. And when the Messiah came... God expected them at that time. And this is what they don't understand. This is what they don't talk about. We don't have time to go through Zechariah and Malachi. This is what they ignore. When, whenever the, God restored them to their land, which He did after the Babylonian captivity, they built a temple. They did all those things. They were supposed to now fulfill that covenant. And then when the Messiah came, He was going to purify the sons of Levi. They were going to offer up an acceptable sacrifice. They were, they had, and then, you know, God was going to be in taking care of their enemies. He was going to set up his kingdom. He was going to do all these things. But Israel didn't do anything God told them to do. Go read the book of Malachi. They failed in everything. Malachi is Israel's report card after the restoration of Israel. You see, that restoration was a huge, huge deal. It was a huge fulfillment of prophecy that was supposed to result in exciting things. And what everybody does is they read Ezekiel... They read these passages, look at all those exciting things. Those things that come in the future. Well, they were supposed to come back in that day. They were supposed to come back then, but you forgot to read the books that showed where they failed and they didn't do anything that God said to do. And so God had to, instead of purifying the sons of Levi so they could offer up an acceptable sacrifice, Jesus had to take on the role of the high priest. Jesus had to offer up himself as a sacrifice, which was always God's plan. I get that. That was always God's plan. Jesus also had to commission the disciples to go and be a light to the world because Israel didn't do it. There were no other nations there during that time. Israel wasn't even acceptable. They didn't understand God had to bring in a new covenant, a new and a better covenant. And so, but so when we read these things, you have to take into consideration the fact that all of these things and if we, if we, and we don't have time to go through Ezekiel 37, you read the rest of this book, there's disclaimers in there, folks. 
There's things that God said he was going to do. There's also things that Israel was supposed to do. And they didn't do them. They, they didn't do them. So now, these things are going to, there's going to be some changes when these things are fulfilled. So, let's, let's read the rest of this to show you this too. Because here's what they'll do. They'll say, in 1948, Israel became a nation. So they're there, but there's no breath in them yet. Okay? That's why they're still wicked. Because they're not saved. They're not saved yet. So it says in verse 9, Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come forth from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. And after the rapture comes, you know, God's going to save that 144,000, and you know, they're now going to have the Spirit, and they're going to have life, and they're going to evangelize the world in a way you know, that you know, Christians never could. No, no, that's not how that works at all. In fact, let's, let's look at what it says. It says, breathe upon them that they may live. So I prophesied, and he commanded me, and breath came in unto them, and they lived, and they stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Then said he unto me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. That has nothing to do with the church, that's the house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried, our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you out of your graves. They're making this symbolic when the Bible's very clear. This is literal. This is at the resurrection. That's when the graves are opened. At the resurrection. And are we not included in that? And what, what do they do? They make another resurrection, don't they? They make another resurrection, even though if you go and you read uh, Revelation chapter 20, when you have those who did not receive the mark of the beast, when they are resurrected, you know what the Bible calls it? The first resurrection. That's the first resurrection. So, wait a minute. You know, so, how, how does that all work? Well, you got to understand that's the first resurrection, but it comes in phases. I just, I, I don't, I don't know what to say at that point. That's just, that's so dumb. You're really desperate to hold on to that pre-trib, pro-Jew doctrine, aren't you? But no, we are going to know this happened when God opens their graves. This is, this is referring to the resurrection. And I will put my spirit in you, and ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. Then ye shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it. Saith the Lord, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and ride upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions, and take another stick and ride upon it for Joseph, the stick, and ride upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, for all the house of Israel and his companions. And join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thy hand. Because remember, the kingdoms were split. You had Judah and Ephraim, which is Joseph, the northern and southern kingdoms. God said, I'm going to make you one kingdom. I'm not gonna, you're not going to be two kingdoms anymore. You're going to be one kingdom. And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim. And by the way, and I've preached about this before, Ephraim is a picture of the Gentiles, by the way. Ephraim clearly is a picture of the Gentiles. I've proved that before. I don't have time to do that again. Uh, but the sticks were on thou right, it shall be in thine hand before their eyes, and say to them, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, where they be gone, will gather them in every side, and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation. 
in the land upon the mountains of Israel. I'm talking about Israel. That's not talking about you. Well, you know what? Go read the book of Ephesians chapter 2 where God says He's made both one. Breaking down the middle wall partition and that's in reference to Israel and the church. God's made us both one, folks. It's not a Jewish church and a Gentile. No. It's one. God, there's one church. There's one people. Okay? There's one. Not going to be So, there's no doubt we're included in this. We were supposed to be included back then, but Israel didn't do anything to reach out. But Jesus thankfully got the job done. Neither will they defile themselves anymore at their idols, nor at their detestable things, nor at any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them so they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That's just talking about Israel, right? Israel will be their people, and they will be, and God will be their God. That's just Israel, right? And David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they shall have one shepherd. And they shall walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant when your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Now, are you sure you want to make that exclusively about Israel? So God is going to dwell with Israel forevermore and that's not the church. Okay? When God's going to put His tabernacle in the midst of Israel but that's not the church. Now that creates a great big problem. God's going to do it forever too. Not just for a dispensation. Okay, forever. Now, Revelation 21, verse 3, sees a new heaven, or verse 1, it says, a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. It just says men. Why doesn't it say Israel? You know, Because it's not about a physical nation anymore, folks. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Why men? You know why? Because there's been people saved from all over the world. There's people from every nation, every kindred, every tongue. God's going to wipe away all tears. It says in verse... Um, jump down to verse where is it when it talks about the uh, oh, okay here we go verse 22 and I saw no temple therein for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it okay the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it so, folks is that not def that's definitely talking about the church isn't it there's no doubt about it but, folks, is that not the exact same promise that we see that God gave in Ezekiel chapter 37? Why is that? You know why? Because these things do apply to us. Okay? These, th these things do apply to us. We see slight differences in there, but that's because under the Old Covenant, there was nothing wrong with the Old Covenant but finding fault with them. The book of Hebrews tells us all about that. Israel messed up. Israel couldn't keep it, but God always had a plan 
to fulfill that covenant through Jesus Christ, who happened to be of Israel, who happened to be the seed of Abraham. So all these things were fulfilled, but through Jesus Christ. Now, what are we supposed to get from that? Well, you know what we're supposed to get from that? That it's all about Jesus Christ. It's not all about Israel. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's not all about a physical people. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's not about the works that we can do. It's about our Him being our strength. It's about Him being our salvation. It's all about Him. You know what we're supposed to learn from that? The just shall live by faith. And so, understand, God has always had this plan. And unfortunately, people's ignorance of that time period of the Babylonian captivity and what happened afterwards, it's made it possible for bad teachers to come along and teach a lot of really dumb stuff about Israel. Trying to set, making it so God has two different people. I mean, Baptists are literally teaching that Israel is the bride of God the Father and the church is the bride of God the Son. And that's so easy to debunk, folks. And we, Ezekiel 37 and Revelation 21 side by side, it debunks that. Okay? It debunks that because God Almighty is dwelling with us in Revelation 21. And how is He going to be dwelling with us for forever? You know, when he's over there dwelling with Israel forever. Oh, well, he's, you know, omnipresent and therefore he can do both at the same time. But not when he's saying he's got one people. Hey, that doesn't make any sense there. Hey, he's got one people. So this is, you know, this, this is the type of, just, it's, it's frustrating to just uh, uh, listen to this type of foolishness and just the things that people pull out of the scriptures. And unfortunately, um, I mean, I think we've used just about every book of the Bible to just prove replacement theology, to prove what we believe about this stuff. I don't know what else to do. I, I mean, there, folks, there's no books, there's no chapters that we shy away from, ignore, yet they run from so much Scripture. They, so much. You go find them, preach on Habakkuk. You know, you know what? The, you know, here, here, here's how, you'll, and you'll find some Southerner preach out of the book of Habakkuk. He'll, he'll preach out of chapter 3. He'll just start reading and it says, Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. Man, I get scared when I hear God. Sometimes. Some of y'all got to get scared when you hear the speech of God. Here he is speaking to you. Y'all haven't been at church all week. You haven't been paying your tithe. You're not following Malachi. You know, the book of Malachi. You've been robbing God. His speech doesn't make you afraid. What's wrong with you people? You know, hey, this is expository preaching right here. We're going verse by verse. And his brightness was the light. Boy, he's the light of the world. Amen. Good stuff right there. He stood and measured the earth and beheld he drove asunder the nations. The everlasting mountains were scattered. I'll, I'll come up with something. I'll, I'll read until something gets triggered. I uh, saw the tents of cushion and affliction and the curtains of the land. Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased? You better believe He was displeased. The Lord is displeased with this country right now. Disgust of all the wickedness going on. They threw Trump out of office when he actually won the election. I can make this about whatever I want. Okay. Folks, that's what, you know that's what they do. These are the people we're competing with. But you know what? They're Southern and they have better insults than we do. And so they, you know, they think they beat us in these arguments. Because they, they, they won't stay on topic. They won't stay in Scripture. So you shouldn't make fun of these people. They deserve it. Okay? They, deserve, they deserve it. That's the kind of preaching we're getting in the Baptist church like I did right there. You know that's what it is. I go on YouTube and I watch other churches and I listen to the kind of things they're preaching. These are the people we're competing with today, folks. 
you know what? I mean, you know, I'm a defender of the IFB. There's just some things you can't defend. And that kind of preaching, you can't defend. And when you have people like that call you a heretic, you know, you do. Sometimes you want to join the enemy. But I'm not wearing the enemy's uniform because I'm not wearing the skinny jeans. Okay? That's not going to happen. I'm not going to you know, take their Bibles and their bad doctrine and all that other stuff. But, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, I see why people are leaving the IFB. You know, when that, but I, I, and I would think that they were real and they were legit if they would actually get closer to God, but they just use it as an excuse to be carnal. Don't, don't fall for that stuff. So anyway, that's all I have time. But that's the book of Habakkuk. Hopefully that was a help to you. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word and the enlightenment that we get from it. And dear God, I just pray you'll help us to learn from these things. Help us to uh, take the time to study these things out and not be sloppy with the scripture. And I pray that, uh, uh, you'll encourage people with it. And Lord, we just thank you so much for including us in your plan. We thank you that we're not second-rate citizens, that uh, you have made a place for us. And we thank you for it. And I just pray that uh, you'll help us, to, like in the book of Habakkuk, to live by faith and to uh, give you the glory on everything that we do. In your name we pray. Amen.